leading up to 1980, there was a oil shortage uh, spurred on by the Iranian Revolution. The 1970s was one of those eras where all the heuristics started to fall apart. It doesn't. One piece of information by itself sounds really great. High corn prices higher than they've been. But then there's the rest of the story. Are we in a better position today because we've been really smart? Or are we in a better position today because we were just really unlucky in the 80s? imagination, there's almost this mysterious link between farming and oil. I think I tracked it back to its source, the idea of striking oil out in a crop field, which seems to trace its popularity to the 1960s and the Beverly Hillbillies, who, though they weren't farmers, got rich and left their rural swamp home after finding oil shooting out of a rabbit hole. But there's actually a much closer link between agriculture and oil than just the coincidence that oil exists under the ground and farming is done on top of the ground so that accessing one, you're likely to bump into the other. But what does oil have to do with the 1980s farm crisis? Everything. And it started with a pair of oil shocks. Leading up to 1980, there was a oil shortage uh, spurred on by the Iranian Revolution. In 1980, that was compounded even further by the Iran-Iraq War, which started toward the end of the year. But the weight of these events and many others were yet to be felt fully in the U.S. Farm Belt. Uh, Those implications kind of came to bear in about 1983. These were the years when the idea of an oil war in the Middle East began to solidify themselves in American minds. A hallmark image from this time period is of cars waiting in mile-long lines for the chance to purchase high-priced gasoline during the peak of the crisis, when many states were rationing fuel. Between 1980 and 1983, the skyrocketing price of energy had sent much of the world into recession. And by the later part of the decade, the U.S. would go to war in the Middle East, the two Gulf conflicts. But how did this broader energy crisis hit home in the farm economy? That's today on Escaping 1980, the farm crisis that was and what we can do to avoid the next one. I'm Sarah Mock. Today, we're going to wade into the murky waters of the broader U.S. and global economy to understand how causes well outside the ag sector started to push an industry at its peak towards a long slide into crisis. All the clues trace back to these two distinct oil shocks in the 1970s as the first indicators that trouble was ahead not just for the farm economy, but for regional and national economies the world over. So the first one was the oil crisis that began in the fall of 1973 when OPEC issued an oil embargo and they listed out several countries, the U.S., the United Kingdom, Canada. And this was all stemming from the Yom Kippur War and support of Israel. And so that happened after the Russian grain robbery. And so this was a different commodity, but we saw the U.S. was very reliant on energy imports and OPEC had a lot of of, uh, clout or a lot of 
power there. And so when OPEC put in the embargo in 1973, that was peak OPEC power. And they had a lot of a leverage and that created a lot of pain. And I know it's a lot of data you could consider. Some of the highlights are oil prices went from about $3 a barrel to about $12 a barrel in a pretty short amount of time. And so that was a pretty big uh, shock to the economy as people were adjusting to higher energy prices. And so in, I think it's important to keep in mind that layers on top of food prices that were already increasing as a concern of the Russians buying all the wheat. And now we have this oil crisis. Yeah. And I think some people would say going from three to 12, it's only a $9 barrel increase. We've seen fluctuations that big in a matter of a week recently, but that kind of misses the key point, which is it went from three to 12, which is you multiply by four to get there. So it's a huge percentage increase. And when you're used to oil and gasoline being nearly free, it causes a lot of stress. And you can imagine when it's that cheap, everything is optimized to use a lot of it because it's cheap and it's plentiful. And I think it was, it's a big shock when that changes. And it, it's a shock psychologically, too, because something that you're used to having plentiful and abundant all of a sudden goes to scarce and it, it causes a lot of emotional response as well as just the economic response. Individuals and organizations throughout the economy felt these shocks and farmers were not immune. I grew up with the story of the 1970s and we grew up, I grew up in Southeast Kansas, which is unique in this because we grew up three or four miles away from the state line of Missouri. And Missouri always has lower gas taxes. So even when I was a kid, going to Missouri to get your gas was like the thing to do because you could save a little bit. But in the 70s, my dad always talks about as he was growing up, uh, and his memory was the gas wars. And what they would do is they would load up in their, their trucks and a bunch of people, a bunch of friends would get together with 55-gallon barrels in the back of their pickups and they'd drive to Missouri and they'd wait for the gas stations to lower their prices and they'd fill up with these big barrels of gasoline and they'd drive them back to Kansas and then they'd figure out to figure out how to get them out of the back of their truck. And some of these were farmers, but this was more of a personal consumption thing. And so you have individuals driving with 55 gallon barrels of gasoline in their back of their pickup. You can only imagine how that would play out in 2020. But as you think about the decision maker, when you see gasoline prices or oil prices going from $3 a barrel to $12 a barrel in the early 70s, that starts to play with the decision-making. It really impacts how people think about making plans. And now all of a sudden they're spending their weekend time, their free time, their leisure time, loading up barrels, empty barrels and driving 20 or 30 minutes to wait around for the gas to fall a little bit so they can load up uh, and they're on their inventories. But this equation is not as simple as to say that farmers are consumers of oil, so they were affected. Farmers consume fossil fuels in many other parts of their businesses too, including importantly, as part of the production of fertilizers. In short, conventional agriculture is energy intensive, and much of that energy is derived from fossil fuels. Because energy is a major input to agriculture, that means there continues to be a strong correlation between agricultural commodity prices and energy prices. The costs tend to be related to those energy inputs as well. And so you tend to see prices creep up. They're seeing 
those energy related inputs going up. So their budgets are going up. But also we saw uh, higher commodity prices stemming from the uptick in commodity prices from the, the Russians purchasing all this grain. And so you see this sort of on one hand, prices are going up, but on the other hand, inputs are going up and it makes it this hard budget and planning environment. And all of a sudden you start wanting to do things like let's get a lot of this on hand. Let's make sure we have some control over the products that we're going to need next year. And all that starts to really change how um, they were making decisions in that decade. Very different than where we were just a few years ago. It's just different how you think about decision-making in an environment where there's a lot of rapid changes in prices across the board. And then when you get a lot of inflation, that's it's almost encourages the hoarding, which is the idea behind rationing, right? It's, you know, toilet paper and the pandemic, people worried they're going to run out. So they go out and buy a year's supply. When enough people do that, you do run out. It becomes a self-fulfilling deal and it drives prices and shortages even higher. And I think that's what happened a little bit when you've got OPEC, which at that time was our energy policy was to buy cheap oil from Saudi Arabia, who he had a very good relationship with, and before that, Iran as well, right, with the Shah. And um, then you get a war between Iran and Iraq, and it changes that calculus a little bit. And so something that people just took for granted all of a sudden becomes a scarce commodity that people are all of a sudden a little bit worried about having. I think it's important to note that there was the the situation in the early 70s, 73, which was the embargo. And then by the time we got to the end of the decade, there was a shock again in 1979 that was stemming from the Iranian revolution. And that was whenever Iran just wasn't able to, to produce as much as was planned. And that sent oil prices up again. So it was a small amount of disruption, but the global supply only decreased by 4%, but the markets reacted very aggressively. Prices roughly doubled during that time frame, And so it was just one of those environments where it wasn't just the one event, right? It wasn't just one oil shock. By the time we made it through the 70s, we had two big oil shocks. So all of a sudden, we went from an environment where oil prices were uh, low. And we think back to the 60s, right? That was the era of muscle cars and big engines, big muscle cars. And by the time we get to the end of the 70s, we're getting these these imported Japanese Honda cars and these Toyota cars. And we have these small Volkswagens coming from Germany. And so it was just a very different environment that we saw over that decade. And it changed how people thought about uh, a lot of things. And farmers were a part of that. But more than just the energy needed to farm was causing agriculture and oil commodity prices to track one another during this time. There's a deeper mechanism, too, that we need to understand. Something that economists describe is the elasticity of demand. Here we go. Basically, all goods and services being bought and sold in the economy lie somewhere along the spectrum from highly elastic to highly inelastic. Elastic goods are those that, as the price goes up or down, people are quick to buy them or stop buying them. Movie tickets or fancy restaurant dinners are a good example of relatively elastic goods, because if the price goes up, even a little, a lot fewer people will buy them. And if the price goes down, a lot more people will. On the other hand is inelastic goods. Food and fuel both fall into this category. 
and are considered inelastic because even if the price goes way up or way down, people will still need them and therefore buy them about the same amount. Commodity prices in general are very inelastic in the short term, meaning it takes huge changes in price to get people to change their buying habits even a little. You know, your supply drops by 4% doesn't sound like much, but if you've got to get people to ration 4%, it's going to take big price moves to do that. And then on top of it, when you have those inelastic commodities like that, in the short term, they don't adjust very much. But they also cause a lot of economic pain. And so then in the long term, you start to see the response, which is more fuel efficient cars and and more awareness of the importance of trying to avoid that situation again. And we saw it in the last oil shock here in the United States, too. I, I remember I was living in Ithaca at the time and going to the gas station, paying over $5 a gallon for gasoline. And you're like, holy cow, this is crazy. Maybe I should buy a hybrid car. And if enough people think about that, eventually some of them do. I didn't, but uh, a lot of people did. And it creates a lot of long-term movement and change. And we implement new fuel efficiency standards and all that kind of stuff comes about because these commodities are really inelastic in the short term. And it takes huge price swings to make them change. Same thing. I keep using the toilet paper example, but it's the same thing, right? Toilet paper's got to get really expensive before people start thinking about what is the alternative here, right? It's it's not something that you want to want to do on a grand scale. So the other thing that's going on, right, there's some price controls being used. So the the White House was saying, we're going to try to limit some of these price changes. And so anytime you do that, you run the risk of creating lines or shortages. I think that was the other part of the gasoline story is not only were prices going up, but this attempt to limit prices going up created lines. And so now people thought not only are prices going to go up, but we're going to run out of it. And so this was a very self-fulfilling prophecy. The inelasticity of commodity prices tends to make ag commodities counter-cyclical. In other words, when the rest of the economy is doing poorly, the ag economy is often a bright spot. Why is that? I'll let these guys explain. When the general economy is doing really well, it may not be quite as good in agriculture and, and vice versa. When our economy is not doing well, the general economy tend to see things like interest rates falling, and that tends to do things like weaken the U.S. dollar and agriculture having a large proportion, 30% of its value being exported, tends to do better in those environments. So that helps it be a little bit counter-cyclical. And it's related to monetary dynamics and and all kinds of other things. Also keep in mind, demand for food typically grows in a pretty predictable way. It's a function of population. It's a function of incomes. And when we see maybe a a bad economy on the horizon, or we look back at a a slowdown or a recession, we see people buying fewer homes or fewer cars or fewer iPhones. And we see impacts on the food side. We see shifts in the food. But generally speaking, uh, people are still out buying uh, food. I think that's part of the reason why the the ag economy is maybe a little insulated from economic downturns. So producers are a little bit insulated from 
economic downturns. And on the other side, on the boom side, right, when people have a lot of money in their pockets, they might be going out and spending more at a restaurant. But when you go back to the farm level, that's still a similar amount of bushels of corn or pounds of meat. But, and this is an important but, though there are multiple mechanisms from energy intensity to exchange rates and trade to consumer buying habits that would tend to make us think that the U.S. farm economy is always countercyclical, it simply isn't. I think there is somewhat limited evidence. That's There's evidence of it, but it's not super strong and it's by no means perfect. The limited evidence is that we've only had two big farm economy booms since the 1970s. We had the 1970s and recently. And so you got to be careful when you really draw a lot of those conclusions because there's just the boom shocks in agriculture are, are pretty few and far between. I do think on the other side of the coin, we know that when the U.S. economy is in a slowdown, that generally means a weaker dollar, which translates into an easier environment where we can export commodities. But these are completely different wavelengths, and, and sometimes they line up in a way that provides a relationship. But the farm economy is a subpart of the big house of the U.S. economy, and there are definitely relationships and how those things flow, but it's not a completely lockstep causation relationship. It's loosely related, right? It's correlation. There's some joint movement, but but it's by no means perfect. I think on the inflation side, there's maybe more long-term evidence that real assets like farmland and other things tend to react to inflation pretty well. And, And there's probably more evidence of that in the data that agriculture is, you know, positively related, land values in particular, positively related to inflation. But again, it's by no means perfect. And it's not an equation with equal sign without an error. It has an error term on it. There's no set rules. The idea of the farm sector being countercyclical to the U.S. economy is a heuristic. It's a rule of thumb that we hear a lot. And we have to be very careful with that as a decision maker. We have to understand how that might be true and how that might be false. And in my opinion, and maybe Brent disagrees with me, I think that's a, that's a heuristic that can get us into a lot of trouble. I think we have to be very careful with understanding where that will fall apart. It's true in my mind when it comes to the dollar and exports and how we could have some advantage in in making up some market share in exports. But to flat out say that a recession in the U.S. economy is unequivocally good for the farm economy, I just don't think it's there. It's not – it can – make some small adjustments. But these booms in the farm economy, which we saw in the 70s, and we saw in around 2010, the farm economy booms are very different and they're not linked to macroeconomic in the US or global cycles within the business. I may even take it a step further and say that the heuristics are great and they make for great stories and you can connect all the dots between it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the plot is going to be the same the next time. So the story might change a little bit. And so much of what we see in economics, I think, is like economic storytelling with the benefit of hindsight. And it's not always clear that it's going to work the same way every time. I think in general, too, the other thing you have to remember about agriculture is that 
Well, when the economy is in turmoil and prices are changing, so they're trying, prices are reacting to try and balance supply and demand. And agriculture is a small sector in the grand scheme of things. So, for instance, when interest rates are rising, they're trying to tell people use less credit. Agriculture could have dropped their credit use to zero. It wouldn't have been enough to impact interest rates at the kind of macro level of the U.S. economy. So to some extent, that's what we say when we say they're price takers, not price makers. We have to adjust to the exogenous factors outside of, of the individual sector. And sometimes that adjustment can be so severe that you could quit using those inputs and it still wouldn't be enough. And so that kind of macroeconomic shock is one of those things that just just it's just dumped on the sector and it can't adjust enough to actually make it better they're just going to have to deal with it the one thing that sets economic shocks apart from other kinds of disasters is that you don't just have to ride them out there are economic and political mechanisms in place to address these shocks and at the time the u.s federal reserve chairman paul volcker was the man with the plan More on that after this break. This episode of Escaping 1980 is brought to you by Brent and David, founders at Ag Economic Insights. Here's David to tell you more about the genesis of the Ag Forecast Network. We're always thinking about ideas, but one of the light bulb moments for us happened when we weren't even really thinking about the business. Brent called me one day and we're talking about grain marketing and he asked me, you know, do you think corn's going to get over 440 this summer? I said, yeah, I think it's possible. And he goes, yeah, me too. So we started talking about potential plans that he might be able to take advantage of in his marketing plan to capture that possible outcome. And 30 minutes in this conversation, Brent said, I think it's a 60% probability of happening. And I was like, oh, I think it's a 10% probability of happening. And it was this weird moment for both of us because how did this happen? We write a lot together. And so we typically know each other's perspectives or at least aware of the other person's perspectives, but how are we so far off? And one of the things we realized is that when you're dealing with uncertainty, it's really easy to trick your mind. And we were using an ambiguous question. Do you think corn prices will get over 440? It's a better question than do you think corn prices will rally? But there was ambiguity in that initial question. And there are questions that we were asking each other all the time. So how can we do better? We realized there's a better framework. And so we started working on what's now the Ag Forecast Network. So we take questions or uncertainties that are on everyone's mind and we turn them into something that everyone can get across the table from each other and be talking about the same thing. But how does the Ag Forecast Network turn good questions into informative answers? Stay tuned. Or if you're impatient, visit AEI.ag. Be your own guru. And now, back to the show. We know about this inflation from our conversation in our previous episode. And now we know how short oil supplies and high prices fueled that inflation. What we haven't talked about yet is what the U.S. Federal Reserve, or the Fed, decided to do about it. So one of the key characters was Paul Volcker. He was the... Fed Reserve Chairman, he came in and was determined to get inflation under control. And the main lever, the main tool in the toolbox to control inflation are higher interest rates, which puts a break on the economic expansion, puts a break on the economy. 
And that really started to get inflation under control, but also created a stall in the U.S. economy and in the makings of a crisis in the farm economy. Paul Volcker is one of the more interesting or important figures of that time. And he was appointed to the as chairman of the Federal Reserve Board in 1979. At, at the time he took over, the Fed funds rate was 11.2%. By 1981, that increased to 20%. And the reason that the Federal Reserve did that, and I think Volcker is the face of it, uh, but certainly the whole board had to be in agreement with it because this was very unpopular. So what they were trying to do is kill off the inflation that was rampant in the economy. And that move created a recession from 1980 to 1982. And it put unemployment at roughly 10%. The bank's prime lending rate hit 21.5% at its peak. As a result, immediately, if you'd been borrowing money, for instance, at 10%, the rate, if that was a variable rate loan, was immediately in the teens, if not higher, and it became very difficult to service any debt. And keep in mind that not only is the cost of serving that debt going up, servicing that debt going up, the income that you used to service it was in free fall as well because of the grain embargo and other things happening in the farm economy. So it was a really bad combination of events. And Mr. Volcker was very unpopular with a lot of people because this was hard medicine. Farmers actually took their tractors. And I vaguely remember this growing up and watching on the evening news and seeing tractors driving around Washington, D.C. And they were there mainly to protest the Federal Reserve's policies. And it was really tough medicine, I think, for the national economy. And it really tripped the farm sector from a bad situation into crisis. Compared to where interest rates are today, there's simply no real comparison. The upper target range for the Fed today is 0.25%, less than 1%. In early 2019, that got up to 2.5%. So just giving you an idea of where we are in more modern history. If you look at some of the data, and you overlay that effective funds rate with the recessions that the U.S. has experienced, there was a sharp uptick in those effective fund rates in the early 1980s, and we had a small recession, and then the interest rates dropped a little bit, and then inflation and the economy came roaring back. And it wasn't just Paul Volcker. It was the whole board. This is not one individual making the decision, but he was the leader and a very memorable leader, but he was the leader at that time at the helm. And they raised interest rates again to the last part of the decade, which put the economy into a second recession. And they again dumped the rates, but it was that second run up in rates that finally got things under control and inflation headed lower. And and that's one really key difference in today's environment than the 1980s. In today's environment, we just don't have that kind of inflation that they were dealing with back in that time period. It's actually, I think, a little bit of a mystery to most economists why inflation hasn't 
been higher, but the Federal Reserve has actually struggled to get inflation to their 2% target. So to that point, inflation is commonly defined as too much money chasing too few goods. I think the mystery sometimes is the chase. When are things being chased and when are they not being chased? And so in today's environment, you can look at the the Fed Reserve's balance sheet, and it's a big number. And that starts to get people concerned about chasing. And it's, it's a necessary uh, condition, but it's not sufficient to induce inflation. I think that's part of that mystery is there's a lot of money arguably out there today, but not a lot of chasing. And so we haven't had that inflation. In fact, we can't seem to kick up enough inflation. I think a, a lot of people would collectively agree that maybe a little more inflation than where we are today might be preferred than to, to the current status quo. But of course, once you get a little bit of inflation, where does it stop? And I think that was one of the problems they had in the 70s is how do you get it reined back in? It's not easy to control. This is where learning from history gets a little tricky. When individual players and unique decisions, driven by personalities as much as by markets, makes it harder to apply lessons from the past to the present or the future. Because the reality is, if it hadn't been Paul Volcker himself driving conversations and shaping these decisions, is there a chance that it could have turned out really differently? You know, sometimes I think and reflect a little bit and think about what Paul Volcker and the Federal Reserve Board did in those days and think that must have been really difficult. Because they knew when they took interest rates to that kind of a level to slow down inflation, they knew that this was not going to be good for the overall economy. And I think it probably took a lot of courage or conviction, at least conviction, to believe that what they were doing was the right approach going forward. And they had to do something that was going to be wildly unpopular. And I always wonder, would the Federal Reserve do the same thing today? If you took uh, that same situation today and put it in place, would those policymakers have the conviction to go forward and do something that's super unpopular? Because they would be getting hauled in front of Congress even more frequently than they are now. Uh, presidents, whoever that president might be, would be not happy with them. And presidents often aren't happy with the Federal Reserve actions. Fortunately, I don't think we're in that kind of environment right now. What the Federal Reserve's had to do was to lower maybe to the extreme. It's probably taken them a little bit of conviction to do some of the things they've done to try and get things going again, as opposed to try and do things to slow the economy down. I, I wonder how policymakers would handle that. And I'm guessing at some point in the future, we'll, we'll get the opportunity to find out. It took a lot of courage and conviction to do that, especially when Paul Volcker came in the Fed had already been raising the effective rate. So in 1977, it got as, as low as 4.5%. And by you know 1978, it was at 10%. And the Fed came in and almost doubled it from that level. And so you've already gone from 4 to 10, and now you want to go to 10 all the way approaching 20. So I think that was the real courage, right? You just keep getting closer to the edge. And everyone knew that if you got too close, the economy would stall. And, and it happened twice in the 1980s, and they had to respond in light of that. But I think the other thing to keep in mind is the 
challenge was big. A decade of really strong, really high inflation was causing its own set of problems. And it took a decade for policymakers to step in and make that decision. It was it, it took a lot of courage, but it took 10 years to get the courage up to the level uh, to actually do that. And there wasn't as much desire to curb the underlying problem of inflation really until Paul Volcker stepped in and started to lead the Federal Reserve at that point. So again, a lot of courage, but it took a big problem and it took a lot of time to get everyone lined up to start moving in that direction. So inflation had raged and Paul Volcker had taken steps to get it back under control. And the result was ugly. The worst largely was yet to come. And we'll get much more into that in our next episode. But it's worth taking some time today to think about how the connection between the farm economy and the overall economy has changed since the 1980s. One of the biggest differences may be that they are even more interconnected than they once were, not at the sector level, but at the individual farm level. It's certainly true today that a lot of farmers have quite a lot of exposure to the broader economy through either a spouse working or they themselves working off the farm. I'm not sure what that data looked like in the 1980s or if they even tracked it at that time, to be honest. I don't know. But it's certainly true that today the farmers in the farm economy have diversified more. Of course, that gets into a question too, is what you count as the farm economy. What really is it? If your job is to count farmers, and to run farm programs and things, you have an interest in counting as many people as you can. So they set the standards of what is a farmer pretty liberally. You have to really do much farming to be counted as a farmer. So that does beg the question as to what we're measuring, but it's definitely true that a lot of the farm economy has more diversification today than they probably did in the past. This higher level of diversification of incomes manifests mainly in one way. Off-farm jobs supporting households that involve a farming member, either by a spouse or a child working beyond the farm, or in many cases, the farmer doing so themselves. So a household has two sources, on-farm versus and off-farm, and on-farm has been a declining share of total household income. So if we look back to the, the first part of the 70s, it would have been about 30 to 40% of the household income was coming from the farm. And now it's considerably lower. It's around 80%, or excuse me, around 20% today. So from 30 to 20%. And it's got as low as 10% throughout much of the 90s and early 2000s. Now, we have to be careful with that because there's a lot of differences here today. There are a lot of farms, a majority of the 2 million farms the USDA tracks, um, something like 80% of them, rely on off-farm income 100% or more. So there's almost some subsidization of the farming activity that takes place. There's a fascinating question here when we think about the modern farm economy. Are farmers mainly participants in the farm economy, where their household income is dictated by commodity prices, or are they mainly participants in the general economy, where their income is more likely to be tied to levels of unemployment? The answer is surprising. One of the things that we've noted in recent history is that farm loan delinquencies, which is a measure of financial stress, it ticked up pretty significantly around 2008 and 2009 during the Great Recession. In fact, farm loan delinquencies was 
considerably higher than we've seen in anything in the last five, six years. That, that was a pretty big shock to the farm financial system. Why would farm bankruptcies have been higher in 2008 than in 2016? Despite relatively good commodity prices in 2008 and much worse prices in 2016? Because vastly more than half of all farm households aren't making most of their income from farming. Thus, whether or not they keep their farms is a function of whether or not their partner keeps their off-farm job more than it is a function of good or bad ag prices. And so why are we talking about this? Because I think it's important that producers realize that the 1980s situation was a combination of a lot of things. It was the early 1980s was a period when the farm economy had low income, but also we saw really high debt levels. And we also saw really high interest rates. And so when you take that combination of low income, high levels of debt, and high interest rates, it becomes really challenging to meet all of your obligations. And I think one of those things was completely outside of the agricultural sphere of influence, and that was interest rate. Farm debt is a small drop in the big total global or U.S. debt equation. And so part of the challenge of the 1980s is that the macro economy had a lot of headwinds that were not helping the situation. It's a bit different here. It's a bit different here in the last few years. We've actually seen declining interest rates. We've seen interest rates slide lower. And so that's been a helpful part of the last few years here currently is the macroeconomy situation definitely hasn't been as big of a headwind as it was a couple of decades ago. And you can even say it's been a bit of a help for producers navigating that. And an economy is made up of individuals aggregated up. So the farmer economy is all these individual experiences added up. And I think sometimes what happens is we try to use these national these big national data to tell what happened, what was happening at the individual level, it, we get the problem flipped around. And we have to realize that producers who were relying very heavily on farm income had significant levels of debt. They were hard hit during that time frame. Today, producers have a different set of situations. I think one of the challenges specifically in 2020, especially if you rolled back to this summer, right, when we had low corn prices, low soybean prices, and unemployment claims in the U.S. trending higher, there was an open question, which was going to be a bigger headwind. Uh, and they were both trending unfavorably, the farm economy and the U.S. economy. That could have been a really challenging situation. Thankfully, at least so far, the ag economy has shown some signs of improvement and the U.S. economy has stabilized and showed some upside. But when we were in the throes of the uncertainty of 2020, both factors were a challenge. That's the other interesting thing is that diversification is good in some ways. And then when you lose your off-farm job, all of a sudden, and the ag economy is bad, it's really bad. And that certainly has happened and, and probably will still continue to happen as we kind of work through the implications of this pandemic. But there's another half of this question that we have to consider. Is the reason the ag economy is faring better today because of resiliency based on diversified income? Or is it more due to the fact that we're simply luckier today than we were in the 1980s? We'll tackle that right after this quick break. The Ag Forecast Network turns good questions into valuable insights by giving its members broad access to how others are thinking about the problems. Here's David. So it's, what's the probability of the December 2021 corn futures contract getting over 425 between November 1st, 2020 and August 1st, 2021? So now we have a specific price, a specific futures contract, a specific time frame. 
and we answer it probabilistically. We don't say maybe or possible like economists usually like to do. Uh, we put a probability. And then what we do is we go through and we update our expectations or our forecast as new information becomes available. We can share. I think it's X probability. Brent thinks it's Y. What information are we taking in? How are we weighting that? Am I missing information? Am I putting too much weight? on some picture I saw on Twitter. And then at the end of it, we actually can go back and have a resolution. The event either occurred or didn't occur. And the forecast network allows us to plot our expectations, plot how they've changed and, and see the resolution. I think one of the great powers of the forecast network is it allows you to see what other people are thinking. I know that I have strong opinions, so you can ask my wife. I, I, I generally have an, an opinion on something, but sometimes grain marking is a great example. It would be very humbling when you're wrong. And so then you start to wonder, how far out am I? I, I think this event is very likely to happen, maybe 80% chance. What are other people thinking? And with the forecast network, we can see that. And I email David all the time and say, what, what do you think the probability of this is today? And really that's how the forecast network started. Is To join the community and start making forecasts today, visit AEI.ag. Ag Economic Insights, be your own guru. Now here's Brent to get us back into the thick of it. Okay, so are we in a better position today because uh, we've been really smart or are we in a better position today because we were just really unlucky in the 80s or we've been really lucky, so to speak, today? And that's where I think a lot of those factors that we're talking about today are completely outside the control of almost all of us. We don't have much impact on what's going to happen to interest rates or inflation rates or the value of the U.S. dollar. And so they're so far outside of our control that chance plays a big role in causing these big swings. That's a huge element of, of the situation is that some of the bets that were being made in the 1970s might not have looked bad, but you have to realize that the cards fell in a way that was very unfavorably. And what role of that was luck? They put a big bet on the table. Don't discount that. But then luck was an element of that today too. And so you ha how do you untangle that? How do you untangle that as a decision maker? And everyone's different. But what we've been carrying with us since the 1980s is be careful with debt, be careful with leverage, be careful overextending yourself. And that was a really important, I guess, we pull up to the table in agriculture today with that collective lesson learned and the file in the back. And there definitely was an element of bad luck and there's arguably an element of, of good luck. Though it may be hard to look at it this way, David says, the last five years in the farm economy have actually been pretty lucky. If the pandemic would have happened as the farm economy was first going through its contraction in 2014, 2015, 2016, it might've had a very different outcome for the sector. And the fact that we've been able to spread out some of the bad news over the last few years has probably been beneficial. It gives things time to, to spread out. Yeah. It, it seems that time in many ways is sometimes your friend in these deals. In part because, as we said, remember, ag demand is going to grow, and it's going to grow over time, okay? 
what gets us into trouble is assuming it's going to grow really fast uh, over time. It, but steadily, but surely, it will grow. And that time buys us the ability to, to catch up with the supplies that we build if we quit adding to them. I think the challenge of today, much like the challenge was in the 70s, is that there was a narrative that was driving a lot of the, oh, just the general things you hear when you talk to people. We've got to eat. People have got to eat. People have got to buy food. They have to have it. Yes, but we probably don't have to have 15 billion bushels of corn in the United States to satisfy those conditions. And and I think that's where there's a disconnect. There's part of that that's true. Yes, people have to eat food to live, but that doesn't mean it's like a blank ticket for the farm sector to just breeze to riches. And so I think that is one of the lessons that I've taken away from all of this is just be aware when you hear mantras like that getting bandied about of push a little deeper on them. But there's been more than luck, diversification, and monetary policy going on in the past 20 years that has changed the circumstances in agriculture, particularly as it relates to changes and vulnerabilities in the energy markets. With the advent of the renewable fuel standard, it, it took those com- ag commodities and energy commodities and made the linkage a little bit more, and made it more explicit. There's always some relationship, but... Weak, but once you have a huge portion of your corn crop going into the energy sector, it tends to tie the two together. And especially when oil prices are going up, it can push ethanol in corn prices way up. Because if you have to blend ethanol, then you have to buy the corn to put it in there, and it just it locks them together. So that was a pretty big change that was implemented in the, what, mid-2000s. And so it's made it more explicit than it was in the past. So just as a way that the renewable fuel standard works, it says basically that you have to blend a certain amount of ethanol into the gasoline supply. And it doesn't say anything about prices. It just says you have to blend so many gallons into the fuel supply. And as a result, it doesn't say anything. Like I said, it doesn't say anything about prices. It creates these renewable identification numbers, which is how they monitor compliance. You get a, you get these credits. And then if you blended a whole bunch of, or you didn't blend a whole bunch of fuel and you were supposed to, you have to go buy the credits that somebody else maybe blended more than they would have had to otherwise as they trade them back and forth. But at the end of the day, it's basically a a quantity requirement that you have to put so much in. And as a result, it's very inelastic. And so, in other words, price changes don't matter a lot. They've got to blend it in. And when corn is tight otherwise, so there's a lot of demand in the early or in the mid 2000s and and beyond, a lot of demand coming out of China to satisfy their needs for feed primarily, it creates a situation where 
you've got demand going up there and oh by the way you have to meet this so prices really start ratcheting up the 1970s was one of those eras where all the heuristics started to fall apart but growth in the ethanol market is just one confounding factor that makes it more difficult to apply the lessons of the 1970s and 80s to today this is one of the key issues with the question is today as bad as the 1980s this time period could be defined in so many different ways that finding apples to apples comparisons to today's market conditions is really, really hard to do. So if you would have told producers right at the beginning of the decade that commodity prices are going to go up uh, to this level and it's going to be a really good time, right? I think three times during this era, corn got over $3 a bushel and, and that would have signaled a really good time. But that piece of information alone wasn't enough to fully capture what happened in the entire decade, right? There were all these other elements, the oil shocks, the overall inflation in the economy. There was the embargo by the end of the decade. We can spend an entire day listing out all the things that happened in that decade. But that one piece of information alone, that corn prices were going to get over $3 a bushel, which would have been unbelievable in nominal terms to see that. When you take all of those factors that happened together, it was setting the stage for what became the 1980s farm financial crisis. That decade had some positive things in it that happened, but there were also some negative things. And a lot of those negative things came from the macro side of the economy. And a lot of things got disrupted and adjusted in that macro side of the economy. I think to build this one step farther is the relationship between ethanol and gasoline consumption in the U.S. and corn today is one where we have to be careful with the heuristics and how we think about that. In one respect, Congress says you have to blend this many gallons of, of fuel per year. But what happens when you have a 2020-like pandemic when people stop driving? We can work that out in the long run. But in the short run, there's if people aren't driving, they're not consuming gasoline, it doesn't matter how much you mandate ethanol to be used, we're just not driving as much. And that really starts to make things difficult. And the Hard to make big adjustments in a short time frame. I think that was a challenge here for 2020. You have to be very careful at drawing conclusions from movements in individual markets. So, for instance, that ag prices are rising now doesn't pretend that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have huge amounts of inflation. I think people have been speculating that well, this these recent changes in ag commodity prices might be signaling that, if, and they very well could be, but it's also possible that the crop was just a lot shorter than we expected and the market knew it before the USDA announced it the other day. It's reflecting supply and demand, and it could have been that the Chinese just used up a lot more of their stockpiles than anybody thought they did, and they're trying to rebuild them right now. So it's not necessarily an indication of widespread inflation, but maybe inflation in, in certain inputs. So it's just very, it's very complicated and a complex system. And, and to try and draw conclusions from one little piece of a gigantic puzzle is oftentimes done at your own peril. When it comes to thinking about how the lessons of the 1980s might be applied to today's farm economy, this is critical. There's no single indicator that can be used to evaluate the health of the farm economy. Looking at just one factor, as Brent points out, can be incredibly misleading. One piece of information by itself sounds really great. High corn prices higher than they've been. But then there's the rest of the story, which is 
really high input prices, really high inflation, all the other prices are changing. It's, so I used to used to always use the example that I think it was like 1982, corn prices were actually higher than they were in 79. But after you adjust for inflation, not so much. And so it, it just, it's hard to manage through those environments. In one respect, right? We have no history uh, that would suggest this type of event to occur, but we have to get past heuristics and level one thinking, and we got to really break this apart. And this is the whole goal of the podcast series, is to break this down from a few uh, heuristics that we're, we're using every day, all of us in agriculture are using. We got to break those down and really understand how they were accurate in the context they were formed, but how they might fail us in a broader context. So if there's a bottom line conclusion here, maybe it's this. The farm economy is affected by the wider economy and its players, both in the U.S. and globally. I know, it's not exactly a revolutionary breakthrough. Digging a little deeper, I think it's safe to say that the 1980s farm crisis might have occurred differently if broader economic factors had been different. Again, kind of obvious. I'm just saying if things were different, then they'd be different. So how does any of this help us understand the economic cycle we're in and help us avoid another 1980s-like crisis in the future? It does this in a really subtle way. It helps us understand how interconnected the ag economy is to the wider world, and more importantly, at which points it's connected, from interest rates in the Federal Reserve to exchange rates and trade to energy inputs and oil prices. With this broader understanding of what led to the 1980s, we're collecting clues not only about where the signals existed for the last farm crisis that we might have detected if we'd been paying attention, but also where we might be looking for signals to the next one in the future. I was actually doing some research for this episode about whether any farmers in real life have struck oil in their fields. I found one case from 2013 where a farmer in North Dakota got out of his combine in his wheat field to find about six inches of oil soaking the ground. But he hadn't hit it rich. A pipeline was leaking, and it would take another five years for one of the worst onshore pipeline spills to be cleaned up. I've been thinking a lot about that and about how the energy crisis in the 1970s fueled the inflation that led farmers to believe they'd struck it rich, but in the end turned out to be a curse they'd be cleaning up for years. Oil and agricultural markets are both prone to extremes, and eventually the circumstances change and coming down can be rough. But at the end of even the longest, oiliest slides, eventually you bottom out. That's next week on Escaping 1980. Until then, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for joining in. Brent and I would like to thank the people who have made this episode and the podcast series possible. First, the AEI Premium subscribers. Second, a huge thanks to the show's in-series producer, editor, and co-host Sarah Mock. Finally, the rest of the AEI team. From C to Shining C, this team has been working remote since before it was popular. A special thanks to Megan, Sarah H., Jeff, and Aaron. Thanks and so long. Greenspan was the immediate successor to Paul Volcker. And so you had the, the next chairman was two decades. A lot of our careers were under the Greenspan regime. <clears throat> 20 years. For the last 15 years, we've had three. <laughs> so it's like a very interesting <laughs> long uh, tenure followed by shorter tenures.
back in the day, he was viewed very popularly in Greenspan. Remember, he used to go to those briefings and they they had this indicator of the size of his briefcase as to what the Fed was going to do. If his briefcase was really big, they figured they might change rates. If it was thin, he probably wasn't going to do anything. So. There's always a saying that if the president wanted to talk to the chairman, he'd have to call. <laughs> like He had to schedule an appointment. He took no, he was an independent. He tried to be very independent, but Greenspan. It was easy to be popular after Volcker, right? Like he yeah. all of a sudden was presiding over an era of declining interest rates. He had 20 years of falling interest rates and the economy in the 90s was arguably very favorable. And so it was a very different era again. Good way to be popular, right? Be chairman of the Fed and lower <laughs> interest rates for 20 years. It's going to work out pretty well for you. He was, you're, as you said, he was he's put into a situation where he had a lot better chance of succeeding and being popular than someone who went in and increased the federal funds rate by 900 basis points in a matter of two years. That's not going to make you popular. <laughs> that goes back to luck, right? Like sometimes you just are the unlucky. You're in a unfavorable, you're get unlucky and you have to do an unfavorable job or un, unpopular job. So he got the job of clean, of, fixing a, a, a problem that had lingered for a long time. So it wasn't a lot of fun. <laughs>